morning. Good morning. Am I on? Hello. Hello, hello, hello. Good morning. All right. All right. So let's get started. If you will, join me in a prayer. Oh, gracious God, we gather together to learn, to grow, and to change. Help us to move into a deeper understanding of your truth. And we lay our lives down before you and ask that you would move amongst us. May we all feel safe with each other, safe to think and question, safe to ask for help, and safe to share our lives with you, our loving heavenly parent. So be it. Amen. Well, today we continue in the story of God uh, as told by a tax collector found in the Gospel of Matthew. Not this Matthew, just want to make sure you understand that. And we find ourselves at the beginning of chapter 18. So I'm going to read the passage aloud to us. You're welcome to join in the screen. We're reading from the message translation of the Bible. And I want you to read this text Uh, Critically, we're going to come back to it and examine it and see what it has to say to us both corporately and individually here this morning. So at about the same time, the disciples came to Jesus asking, who gets the highest rank in God's kingdom? For an answer, Jesus called over a child whom he stood in the middle of the room and said, I'm telling you once and for all that unless you return to square one and to start over like children, you're not even going to get a look at the kingdom, let alone get in. Whoever becomes simple and elemental again like this child will rank high in God's kingdom. What's more, when you receive the child like on my account, it's the same as receiving me. But. If you give them a hard time bullying or taking advantage of their simple trust, you'll soon wish you hadn't. You'd be better off dropped in the middle of the lake with a millstone around your neck. Doomed to the world for giving these God-believing children a hard time. Hard times are inevitable, but you don't have to make it worse. And it's doomsday to you if you do. If your hand or your foot gets in the way of God, chop it off and throw it away. You're better off maimed or lame and alive than proud owners of two hands and two feet, godless in the furnace of eternal fire. And if your eye distracts you from God, pull it out and throw it away. You're better off one-eyed and alive than exercising your 20-20 vision from inside the fire of hell. Watch that you don't treat a single one of these childlike believers arrogantly. You realize, don't you, that... Their personal angels are constantly in touch with my Father in heaven. So much in this passage that we could explore today. Uh, The reality of an eternal fire in hell. Did Jesus really mean to pluck out your eye or was he being hyperbolic in that statement? But I want to discuss one aspect and kind of one aspect alone. So to do so, first... Let's consider this. What is the question being asked of Jesus and who is it being asked by? The question that gives rise to Jesus' teaching is, who gets the highest rank in God's kingdom? And it's being asked by Jesus' disciples. You see, we can imagine that these fellows are feeling threatened by all the additional followers that Jesus has been garnering and of the time and of the energy that originally belonged to them is being now redirected to these new folks. Thus, the question that they're asking and that speaks to us today, this question is a question of power, of status, and of privilege. It's insider talk. Addressed to Jesus, who simply will not have it. Jesus, as we have seen over and over again in the Gospel of Matthew, is committed to exploding the boundaries of us versus 
them. His kingdom is one that is open, as you'll remember, to whosoever will. The disciples, like us all too often, are afraid. This is the source of their question. They're afraid of not being seen as special. They're afraid of losing their place in the it crowd. They're afraid that they aren't good enough and so on and so forth. They're afraid. So understanding what is motivating the disciples' fear, Jesus makes a radical point in a radical manner. And weren't all of his points and weren't all of his methods radical. He does this by bringing over a child. Now You might say today, why is this so radical? Well, it's radical because the status of children in that day were very different than the status of children today. And it's because of the culture and the time and the context that makes what he did so radical. Let's look at this just a little bit. For those of you who are interested in such, uh, I'm going to be referring and citing some passages here from O.M. Bake, from When Children Became People, The Birth of Childhood in Early Christianity. You see, when we're looking at the context of Jesus' day and we're looking at how the Greco-Roman world treated children, we need to understand this. From Plato, Aristotle, and Stoicism onward, anthropological debates centered on speculations about the composition and function of the human person and the human soul, what we're all about. Here, the concept of logos, you may have heard that word before, and it's more than just a computer program. But word or speech or reason is what it intended for that community. It plays a central role. There was a broad consensus among Greek philosophical tradition that the city-state was held together despite serious conflicts of interest by the logos. Remember that word or speech or reason that was employed to resolve these conflicts in a peaceful manner. You see, for the Greco-Romans, it was free male citizens who possessed that logos to resolve these conflicts. Women and older men possessed it to some extent or more correctly they shared or had the potential for logos. While slaves and barbarians definitely lacked it. Not surprisingly... Children were classified along with this last group. This child that Jesus brings forward symbolizes then the absence of Logos. That etymology of the word child or children in Greek, napioi, and in uh, Latin, infantes, means not speaking. In other words, they didn't have the capacity to reason, to think out. And it was this lack of ability to communicate in an adult manner. It meant that they were standing outside of the rational world of adults. Plato frequently groups children together, again with these marginalized actors in classical society. Women, slaves, and animals. And Aristotle does the same thing. Children are seen as the same as animals. As cattle, as herds, as belongings. They were inferior to adults in the same way that stupid and foolish men are inferior to good and wise men. And one consequence of such ideas is that the opinions of children were seen as like animals. No human being in possession of his rational faculties then would choose to live with the limited capacity for rational thought that one finds in a child. Or return to childhood once it had been left behind. Jesus is saying in a very radical manner to these men in this context. You need to become like one of these children. That was totally unreasonable. In their parlance that would have become 
been becoming like an animal again or marginalized or outside. So why would Jesus use this imagery to make this point? Isn't he discouraging people from joining his cause, his inaugurating the kingdom of God on earth? Yeah, (laughs) probably so. Jesus had this habit of thinning the ranks. He was a, a dude who was all about high invitation and high challenge. We've kind of mentioned it here before, but Jesus wasn't a great giver of an altar call or sealing the deal. I'm going to feed the crowds, right? 5,000 men with women and children. I'm going to break some loaves and fish and miraculously feed them all. And people are going to come to Jesus and they're going to say to him, become our king. And what does Jesus say? Well, eat my flesh. (laughs) It's not a good sales job right there. Jesus, what must I do to follow you? I've done this and this and this. I've kept all the commandments. Well, you're rich. Give everything you have away. Oh. Or this one. This is my favorite. Whosoever will may come. High invitation. Everybody, the dregs of society, the people who are considered less than and marginalized and who don't have access to God. Jesus is saying, I'm on your side. Come follow me. We're here with you. All right. Take up your cross. Let's go die. (laughs) Jesus has this way of thinning the crowd, not because he wants to keep people out, but because He fully understands what it takes to stay in. He recognizes that the following value is essential for generating the type of kingdom or body politic or family that he has in mind. And that value is at the heart of what it means to embrace Jesus, to call yourself a Christian, and to be a follower of the way. And that is the value of humility. Just absolutely is. And if you can't get away from that, if you can't, if you, and sorry, if you can't get a hold of that, then you're just not going to fit in Jesus' way. After all, this is the God who chose to become like one of us, Philippians 2, not clinging to his rights as God, but humbling himself to be like us. So if we looked at Baki a little more in this understanding of children, one of the characteristics of children that was not so negative, but was positive, was this. Children, Plato describes, are soft and malleable. They're formable. They're gumbies, both in physical and in the intellectual sense. One of the most prevailing pedagogical instruments that you'd find in all the classrooms in that day would be a wax tablet. That's how you communicated in the written language. And he emphasizes that children are like wax tablets able to be impressed upon with really endearing Things, making imprints on unformed minds. For youth, it is impressionable and plastic, and while such minds are still tender, lessons are infused deeply into them. But anything which has become hard, all right, anything that's set already, it's only with great difficulty that it softens. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? Do you see that for those who are wanting to transition from the kingdom of the world to the kingdom of heaven, it's of the utmost importance that they become humble, they become teachable, like wax even. You see, to be born again, to become like a child, to repent and turn from your way, These phrases are not those that are utilized when encouraging minor course corrections. These are images and terms employed to denote the need 
for radical transformation. These phrases challenge the sensibilities of and even offend those who are fond of themselves or content with themselves, content with the way things are. Jesus is not advocating a humble brag here. No, he is stating that humility is a must, a non-negotiable for those who want to follow him and live according to his way. To enter the kingdom of God... You, me, whosoever, we must be all in when it comes to developing humility. So returning back to that passage, we see that after Jesus has made his case for childlikeness, pulling that kid aside and saying, you've got to be like this, He then chides the disciples and he gives them a very stern rebuke and warning for acting not childlike, but childish. See, they're acting childish in their bullying, in their arrogance, in their looking at Jesus and shouting, mine, mine, not yours. You ever seen a couple of kids? In that situation, my bear, no, my empty paper towel roll, (laughs) no, my rock, no, my booger. It doesn't matter, right? And you're like, okay, that is yours. Keep that over there to yourself. See, as an aside here, but a very important aside, we do this so very often when it comes to our faith. We speak insider language. We get angry that we who have worked so long and so hard to be holy, to be set apart from the world. We get angry that we're not loved more by God than the riffraff or the loose acting misbehaving folks out there. We demonstrate the same childish behavior that the disciples were exhibiting in this passage. With our words, with our actions, with our Facebook posts, we scream to the world, mine, mine, not yours, as it relates to Jesus. So then, how do we avoid being childish like the disciples and how do we become childlike in the manner that Jesus is asking? It's one thing to say you need to be more humble, but how do we become humble? How do you and I strip ourselves from the need to only cater to ourselves? How do we stop being so self-centered? How do we become humble? Well, I want to suggest to you very briefly today. I know this feels like I'm just getting ramped up, but, but I'm not. We're landing this plane pretty soon. We've got other stuff to do and other stories to hear. How do we do this? Well, I would suggest that one of the greatest childlike qualities that we can embrace is that of wonder. W-O-N-D-E-R. Not wander, but wonder. Rachel Carson, some of you know who she is. She was a prophetic voice in America. Her work, Silent Spring, helped establish the Environmental Protection Agency at a time when corporations were just letting their waste run off anywhere they wanted to. And she said, wait, we got children, we got birds, we got fish. We need to think about this, right? We need to take care of what we have. So I trust her voice in a lot of things. And I like how she says this, although it's not literal, but here you go. She said, if I had influence with the good fairy, that's the part that's not literal, uh, who is supposed to preside over the christening of all children, I should ask that her gift to each child in the world would be a sense of wonder so indestructible that it would last throughout life. This is the wonder that we need to see that the world out there, the God there, that the person next to us, is an infinite source of wonder. 
children get this. Children look up. Children look down. Children are fascinated by things that drive us crazy. For a little while when I lived with the Helpmans, Roby was fascinated with ants. They captivated her interest. We were talking about ants all the time. And every day, she would talk about ants. Now, she liked to, she liked to step on the ants. Uh, not quite the same, but she was fascinated. She had wonder at them, and it reminded me, and I actually did this. I don't know if you did this. I used that prompt to go and read one of my favorite scientists, E.O. Wilson, who's made a huge living studying ants. He's a Harvard professor and written so much. Biophile, he's a great guy who's taught us much about the universe and systems and how it works. But somehow, when we make that transition from child to adult, whether it's explicit or implicit, we're taught to stop wondering. No, I don't do that. Don't look at that. That's weird. It's, it's an amazing thing. My wife's a middle school teacher. She can tell you this. That shift from fifth grade to sixth grade when elementary school kids get into middle school, they're out on the playground having a good time, whatever. That first week or two, the seventh and eighth graders are looking at them saying, we don't do that here. <laughs> look, comport yourself in a dignitary fashion, young man. <laughs> That's not how they say it, but it's basically stop being a kid. We're adults. That's how we roll. And we stop doing things that brought us so much joy. We need to be childlike in our sense of wonder. We need to mind the world and see that when we look to our spouse, you know, there's this moment when we, when we settle for less than what we once had. I think I've shared this with you before. My wife's here now, so I'll be telling stories about her a lot more. Good stories. Um, but, but I was slimmer in college. Not a lot slimmer. Slimmer. And part of that was because for nourishment and sustenance, I'd take in her brown eyes, and that would be enough to feed me for a while. You remember the early throes of relationships? When, like, there's stuff going, you're like, no, nah, I'm just looking in these eyes. I'm just checking out this smile. Uh-uh. I might get a little sugar if I stay here long enough. And then somehow you grow up and you get into the routine of life. And now things that were once cute may be little... Irritants. And things aren't all lovey-dovey all the time because you're not working on it. There's other things to handle. And pretty soon you realized, I did. It's been three days since I really looked into Nicole's eyes. This is not good. This is not healthy for us. This is not healthy for my soul. This is not healthy for our relationship. The great Christian spiritual fathers and mothers throughout the centuries have taught long and hard about making sure you retain the divine gaze. And what they mean by that is not that there's a big eye of Sauron in the sky that you're staring at, a la hobbits and Tolkien. But then instead, you look at the world with fresh eyes. And everywhere you see, you either see God or you see the absence of God. But it's all to keep you connected relationally to our Creator. So we have to nurture. We, 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 have, to, we have to embrace. The first thing, the way we get wonder is we notice. We look around. That's what I'm talking about. One of my favorite poems... Love it so much. I got some of it tattooed on my body. Is earth's crammed with heaven. And every common bush afire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. 
The rest just sit around and pluck blackberries and daub their natural faces unaware. That's from Elizabeth Barrett Browning in her poem, Aurora Lee. In other words, the world is full of burning bushes. God is alive in all things. But unless we have the eyes to see, we're just plucking blackberries. We're just wiping our faces. We're not taking off our shoes and saying like Moses did before the eternal This place is holy for God is here. So once we've noticed, and that's your homework this week. Your homework is to just look, to notice, right? Just hug a tree, you know? Pet your dog. Look into your spouse's eyes lovingly. Maybe hang with your kid before you, you know, hit it or something. I don't know. That was so inappropriate probably to say. But notice, because once we've noticed, then we can name. What's in a name? Oh, I feel you with naming. Be, be butterfly and behemoth, be galaxy and grasshopper, star and sparrow. You matter, you are. Be, be caterpillar and comet, be porcupine and planet, sea sand and solar system. Sing with us, dance with us, rejoice with us for the glory of creation. Seagulls and seraphim, angel worms and angel host, chrysanthemum and cherubim, O oh cherubim, be. Sing for the glory of the living and the loving, the flaming of creation. Sing with us, dance with us. Be with us, be. I fill you with naming. That's from Madeline Lingle. Really stoked about her upcoming movie, A Wrinkle in Time. She says that one of the greatest forces for good in the world, what it means to be fashioned in the image of God, is to name. God has this thing with naming, right? Uh, You're Jacob. Nope, you're Israel. You're, you're, you're Saul. Nope. You're Paul. You're, 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 you're Cephas. Nope. You're, you're Peter. You're rock. Over and over again, God delights in giving us our true names, not the labels that have been handed to us by this world. And so once we notice things, We name them because that's what it's like to be made in the image of God. The first task given to Adam was what? To name. To look at the animals and to see them for who they are and to name them. Who named the woman? Adam. He called her Eve. When I look at a 12-year-old full of zits and Awkward and gangly, I don't see them as their classmates may. I see them for the man or for the woman that they're going to be fashioned and formed in the image of God. You want to love people like God loves them? Resist labeling them. They're not this or that or this or that or this or whatever. They're a child of God, fashioned and formed in God's image, and we name them. You have family members, you have friends who are struggling, they're going down the wrong road, they keep making the wrong mistakes. Don't continue to label them like the world is. Help them to see themselves as they truly are in their God-envisioned self by saying, this is going on right now, I don't agree with this choice, but you're this. And guess what? Do that to yourself. I don't care if you're 75 years old and here. Most of the counseling that I do with people throughout my ministerial career has been regarding some issue of labeling that happened in adolescence that never got named. Love yourself. See yourself as God has made you. And name yourself. So once we have noticed and named, we nurture And this is the conclusion. It's not enough to notice and to name, but it's to continue this push. It's to continue 
this divine gaze to catch God's eye. And we do that by choosing daily to be childlike, not childish. I stated earlier that a very childish thing to do, what the disciples were guilty of doing, was to say, mine, mine, and to hang on. And Nicole and I don't have kids, so I've had the opportunity to watch parents far and wide with this particular situation. When you're pastor of a church, you're always around families, and this is always happening. It never goes away. And there's always that moment when some kid picks, it's a birthday or party or whatever, right? So AJ's four and Meg's five, and they're at the birthday party. And Meg gives to AJ here a toy. And 10 minutes later, after all the toys are open, Meg comes over and she wants to play with the toy that she had given AJ. AJ, being four, is not socially advanced enough to, to articulate what he needs to say other than in a fashion of, No! Mine! Mine! And I see parents do this all the time. And I'm sure I would do it too. There's this kind of embarrassment. Oh God, what's happening right now? AJ, 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 share. AJ, we've talked about this. Share. You have to let them play. Look at all the toys you have, AJ. Share. And there's kind of this thing going on here. But the truth of the matter is AJ can't share that yet because that's not fully AJ's yet. AJ hasn't had the time to really embrace and to feel that that's his. Once it's his, then perhaps he can share. But until that's set in, we're asking AJ to give back what he hasn't fully had time with to make sure is his. So it's sharing is impossible in that moment with that particular instance. The problem with so many of us, like the disciples in this story, is that we haven't fully realized who we are to Jesus and who Jesus is to us. We're insecure that someone's going to take it away. We're insecure that we're not good enough or that we haven't met the standard. And all of a sudden, God's going to be displeased with us. So we can't share Jesus the way we need to in a winsome way because we haven't yet had Jesus. We might have walked up and made a statement. We may have attended church for 40 years. We may preach the gospel. But the problem is, is our righteousness has not exceeded that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And we still think this is a game of control where we tick off boxes so that God will be pleased with us. If you hear anything I say to you today, it's this. God loves you. God not only loves you, God loves all. Now, when we say we're separated from God, this is not the Old Testament concept of God living in a box, the ark. And we as a nation displease God, and so God goes and plays with another nation for a while. We have to understand things from the vantage point of Christianity. That the Holy Spirit lives and dwells and abides with us. And that we don't have a monopoly on God. And there's nothing we can do ever to cause God to do anything less than love us. Now, we can act like a teenager who's making bad mistakes. And the parent is right here saying, I love you. And our own shame and guilt, even though our parent is right here is causing relational distance but God's desire is that all will know God and be loved by God and embrace that so here's the deal once you notice God is out there and that God is in here 
once you notice that there's nothing that you can do to separate yourself from God's love for you, not your behavior, not your background, not even your beliefs, once you realize that and you're able to name that in yourself, then you can nurture that wonder and childlikeness the same way Roby runs up into Jeff's lap and she knows no matter how bad she is, her daddy loves her and that's not going to change. If we could only allow ourselves to do that with our heavenly father, our heavenly parent, then we would feel free to share that love with everyone else. So our message today is Cultivate a life of wonder so that we can be like children, humble, wonder-filled, awe-filled, and secure that our daddy loves us. So let me just pray a quick prayer over you. We've got some other things we're going to do, but let me just say this. Father, God, source, creator of us all, Jesus our Redeemer, our Savior, our friend. Fill our lives with wonder. Help us to lose control. Help us to move past the fear that causes us isolation from you, from ourselves, from one another, and that also causes isolation from you and others. Teach us to be like a child. Teach us to be malleable and soft. Teach us to keep noticing and naming and nurturing what that is. And help us to make that decision not to be childish, but to be childlike in all that we do. And as you wrap your arms of love around us, help us to just delight in that. This morning and every morning this week and all mornings to come. When we feel fearful, let us run to your lap. We thank you for these things. You're changing us. More and more, we're becoming like you, Jesus. Amen. Help me thank Matt for sharing with you guys this morning. It's kind of hard act to follow. I love, I have to do point out one thing. I love how when Matt was talking about Roby and the ants and he said, I don't know about you, but it, it kind of led me to then investigate such, such and such Harvard who made money on writing about ants. Like he was like actually acting like I would look that up too. I was like, no, no, I'm just worried about making dinner. So I'm like, uh, but thank you. I will have to look up that person and then introduce that person to Roe because she's fascinated by ants. I thought it was interesting that Matt, this is the passage this week. This is I have all these little conversations with our girls that are with with all our kids, but specifically right now, Rio and Roby have like all these questions and they're always asking questions. And I was putting the girls to bed this week and Rio said to me, you know, mom, I know why um, kids are better than adults. And I was like, oh, please, please share. And she said, you know, kids are better than adults because adults don't know how to ask questions anymore. And I can ask questions about anything and, you know, in her little way. And, and I thought, you know, it's a really interesting perspective because, you know, if you're around her ever at all for an extended amount of time, she asks a lot of questions. She always wants to know why and how's, why, why is this or why not? Or, and, and really as an adult, you know, I think we do stop wondering and asking because, because we have different things that are occupying our minds. And so a, a beautiful lesson learned um, from that this morning. We're going to shift gears and we're going to take a few moments to share some, just a couple more stories with you. We began this last week and we're trying to um, give opportunity to hear stories from you, those of you who have been a part of the Grove and how you came to find the Grove. And the reason why we're doing this is because we feel like it's a great way to keep us connected as a family. I mean, some of you have been coming for a long time and you've maybe never heard a story of the the person that sits right across the aisle from you as to why they're here and why they've been coming to the Grove for all these years. So it just kind of creates this personal connection to one another. And I want to share with you um, an email that we got this week. And um, and then we're going to see a video of a couple more stories of people um, 
that, that have been coming and have been a part of this place. But this is an email that we received from somebody that's been a part of the Grove community for five years now. And, and she writes, when asked to write what the church is to our family, I can't help but think of the times that this community and our faith have gotten us through hard and tough times and struggle. But in this moment, putting words on the paper, I feel like a fraud, like someone is looking to show a testament and not actually living it. As someone who did not grow up in church with a structured faith, I struggled with the institution of church. And when my son was invited to the Grove on his second day of school, my only response was, maybe. It only took the first sermon where Jeff said the words, you're broken, I'm broken, we are all broken, that I decided I should come back for the next week. And then I came, the next, and five years later, I'm here today. When we first began attending the Grove, I wondered how and where religion would fit into our world, our lives. For many of of the last few years, we have been 100% ingrained. However, as the years have gone and come and gone, I find that that new faith excitement has escaped me. And at one point, I was scheduling things around our church schedule, and now I schedule church around our life schedule. It seems to have far less room. This week, I was reminded of the Shauna Nyquist book, Present Over Perfect, a Grove small group read that really significantly changed my life in many ways. Specifically reminded of this quote, we can't trade empty for empty. We must go to the waterfall for there's a break in the cup that holds love inside us all. I wonder if my fraud feeling would be removed if I find myself at the waterfall again. If I find myself in church this morning, listening to the word and being present. However, like most things these days, I have other things scheduled and will find myself surrounded by strangers and in the heat of the day. But today in the woods, I can hear the waterfall and I know I need it. And I know that I need this place, the grove. So I wanted to share that with you. And then we're going to have a a couple videos to share a couple more stories about the grove with you today. This is Todd Sessons with the Sessons family. We moved to North Carolina back in 2006 from Orlando, Florida. Um, We were looking for a church and actually went to about 12 different churches. It was really hard to find a church to live up to the church that I was at in Orlando. But when we came across the Grove, we fell in love with the music and the children's program. It allowed my kids to be able to enjoy coming to church, which is actually a really cool thing when they want to come to church. Now, throughout the years, the Grove has meant many different things to us, and my kids and I have learned many different things from the church. But one of the greatest things that the Grove has meant to us is it provided my kids a safe place to be able to grow in Christ, grow their relationship as they grew older. It allowed them to be able to see how adults should have that relationship with Christ. It it provided that good foundation for them. And now as they start leaving my house and they grow older, as they go through these hard times in life, they're able to look back at what they've learned at the Grove. (laughs) Hey, everybody. I'm Patrick. This is my wife, Chelsea. We're the Birches. Uh, How we found the Grove Church was shortly after having moved to Bryson City. Uh, We were invited by a family member. Um, We instantly fell in love and have been attending ever since. When Jeff asked us what the Grove meant to us, when Jeff asked us what the Grove meant to us, it was a pretty, pretty easy question to answer. The Grove means everything to us. Um, our daughters have been raised at the Grove. We were married at the Grove. All of our serious friendships and relationships have developed um, through the church. The Grove to us means fellowship, it means community, it means a foundation for our kids, for our marriage, for our friendships. Um, We've always, every time we've walked through the door, we felt welcome and included in all of our broken messiness. um, There's just, there's never been a time when we thought, you know, we couldn't bring this to church and get through it and get loved through it or held accountable or... Um, you know, have help finding the answers. So, genuinely, the Grove means everything to us. And we're so thankful that we found it. Bye, everybody. Would you stop saying bye, everybody? It feels so...
All right, cool. So thank you guys for sharing those with us. I'm Jeff. I feel like I need to say that because I have not been here the last couple Sundays. We were privileged to go on vacation, so I feel kind of like a visitor this morning. Uh, I was going to say I'm an elder. I think I'm still an elder. Am I still okay? Good standing? We'll see. Okay, so we'll see how good I do here. This may be my last hurrah. I don't know. We'll see. But I'm excited this morning about several different things. Number one, the word we've heard, the songs we've heard. But tomorrow morning is my 20th first football practice, and we start official in the morning. I'm so excited. It's like Christmas Eve for me today. I cannot wait to get to tomorrow morning. You guys know I'm a coach. I love it. I told Jim when I stop loving it, then I'll probably quit. That'd probably be a pretty good idea, I would say. But I'm excited about our team this year. And we've had a good summer. The boys have worked hard. And as we go into tomorrow, we have decided this year to come up with kind of a team mission statement. Something that we're going to live by, something that we're going to constantly pound our kids with, something that they're going to see everywhere, something they're going to hear all the time. And as coaches, we sat down and tried to come up with this. And we went through a lot of things, and finally it came down to two words for us this year. You see, we've not been satisfied with the way things have turned out the last couple, three years. We don't feel like we've met our expectations and our community's expectations. Two words, be different. Be different. It's in our locker rooms, it's in our weight room, it's on uh, t-shirts. If you follow me on Twitter, I put it a lot of times with what I have to say about our football team. Be different. And for the kids, that means a lot of different things to them. And what we've tried to teach them this summer is be different in the classroom. Be different how you treat each other. Be different at practice. And for sure, be different in the games. But not only just be different, but when you be different, do it to make a difference. Don't just do it to be doing it. Do it to make a difference. And that mind, that thing is really stuck in my mind. And I got the little new email, which I really like, on Monday saying, hey, you're going to do the giving moment this week. And this is going to sound kind of like a broke record, but you guys kind of know my story. God laughs at me constantly. And I thought, all right, God, what am I going to use this week? Monday, nothing. Tuesday, nothing. Wednesday, nothing. Thursday, nothing. Friday, nothing. And I'm thinking, Lord, wait, it's getting close. What am I going to do? I got in the bathtub Saturday morning. I said, God, I'm not getting out of this thing until you tell me and give me a sign of what you want me to talk about this morning. So at 5 o'clock yesterday afternoon, I got out. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It came to me just like that. And it was, this, it was this thing about being different. How can I use what I've taught our kids to kind of talk to you guys this morning? And it's kind of funny where he took me because I came to a story that one of the first stories we all learned I'm sure when we started reading the Bibles, little kids. Book of Genesis. Let me give you a few verses. Chapter 5. It says, God saw that human evil was out of control. People thought evil, imagined evil from morning to night. God was sorry that he had made the human race in the first place. It broke his heart. God said, I'll get rid of my ruined creation. Make a clean sweep. People, animals, snakes, bugs, birds, the whole works. I'm sorry I made them. And then I found two words in the Bible that I had never seen before, that I'd probably never focused on before, that are so powerful, that I think may have changed the course of human history. It said, but Noah. But Noah. And if you read the message translation, it says, but Noah was different. And I thought, wow. What an awesome thing to reveal. But Noah was different. He loved God. He did things the right way. Noah made a difference. You know, how awesome would it be this morning to think about God looking down on us and saying, you know what? I don't really like a lot of the things that's going on. But Matt, but Mason, and I could go on and on. So let's be challenged this morning to think about maybe daring to be different this morning. Dare to be different, but to make a difference. When you think about our giving that we're fixing to take up after these guys sing, let's be different in the way we think about that. Let's change our mindset. But let's do it to make a difference. And I think God would be so honored by that. So it's funny how I can take a little thing that you'd give to a group of football players and throw it out there to you guys this morning. 
So I hope you got a little something out of that, but I do challenge you to think about that. Be different, but do it to make a difference. You know, um, I love I, I love what Matt said today. It's it's in our adultness, you know, and, and our self-centeredness and our desire to control um, that we lose control of our relationship with God, I think. And uh, it's when we, when we can let go of the fear and the desire to control and whatever, all those things, that's, that's when we can connect more clearly with God. And that's when we can hear from him and we can move in his direction. Um, when we can come together, like Liz said, when we opened all of us very different um, there's a reason that we're all here broken and different because we have so much to learn from each other. We have to let our guard down to do that, though. We have to let go of our pride um, so that we can hear and learn from others, um, from God through others. The song that we're about to sing, um, the bridge says, it's all because of you, God of love, God of love. It's all because of you I come. And it really is. I mean, hopefully that's why we're all here. And um, Maybe whether we know it or not, you know, in these stories, some people don't even know how it is that they ended up here, but, but they did, and, um, and I'm really grateful for that. So you guys listen to the song, and then we'll pass the baskets. With your arms of love you have been pursuing me how can i not come all you ask of me is nothing but my poverty you will be enough i have come here to be with you because of you in all 